Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We are your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the fun and often scandalous side of history. Uh, we are so excited to be coming at you May. It is spring. Uh, it's actually great weather in D.C. the week that we're recording this. Uh, things are opening back up every week, uh, so it's becoming more and more like the city we know and love. And we're really excited to talk to you about um, a great place uh, full of history, but also a place that is open and that you can visit right now. Now, which is really exciting. Uh, as always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are the, the Rebecca. Rebecca's. <laughs> uh, I am really excited about this episode. Uh, we are going to talk about a place we've talked about before. Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, if you've not already uh, hit up our previous Arlington episodes, we'll definitely put some links to those in our show notes. But more specifically, we're going to be talking about the tomb of the Unknown Soldier, uh, sometimes referred to as the Tomb of the Unknowns today. This is kind of a great time to be talking about Arlington National Cemetery and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. We're coming up to Memorial Day very soon, previously known as Decorations Day, which I have some, uh, I, I, this won't be in the episode, but if you come on my Arlington tour, I'll give you some Decorations Day history. And this year marks the centennial of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. So uh, this is kind of a perfect time to jump into this topic. Uh, but before we do, just a little heads up about our summer schedule. It's getting to be summer. People are, are getting ready. Things are opening up. We're getting back out. Vaccinations are rolling. Uh, so we are going to be uh, on a little bit of a modified schedule this summer, knowing that we'll be out leading tours and knowing that many of you will be out and about enjoying your summers, traveling, hopefully coming to D.C., and joining us on a tour. Uh, so for this summer, we'll be doing two full-length episodes in June and July with some bonus episodes. Uh, if you're a patron, get excited. You're going to get bonus content early. You're going to get special bonus content. Uh, we're going to have some interviews and special guests. It's going to be really exciting. Um, if you're not a patron, it's never too late to sign up to make sure you get access to all those extra interviews and, and episodes and things, videos, uh, and make sure you get that early access. We'll do two episodes in August and then we'll take a little August recess. So much uh, like Washington, D.C. traditionally has a little August break, we will also take a little short break in August uh, to cool off and lay under the air conditioning. And then we'll be back full force after Labor Day. So um, we'll still be around this summer, but just be aware, I'll be a slightly slower pace on the episodes, give everyone a little bit more time uh, to get out and enjoy what will be a well-deserved summer, I think. It really will be a well-deserved summer. I'm very excited about it and come on our tours and it's going to be really great. It's going to be hot, but you know what? We know all the shady spots because we've been doing this a while. So come to DC. Wait, I just want to say, not only do we know the shady spots, we also know all the shady spots. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> so as Becca mentioned, we have a little bit more serious and less scandalous of a topic today. Um, we're going to talk about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and sort of the history of it and the unknowns and the tomb guard and this is going to be a lot of stuff that we talk about on our tours of Arlington National Cemetery and um, Arlington National Cemetery is a wonderful and amazing place and a very powerful place and everyone should visit it uh, in part because of the tomb but there's a lot of other stuff that we're not going to get a chance to talk about on this pod but Arlington is really great and however we're going to start at the beginning, begin at the beginning. Uh, we're going to talk about the history of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and sort of how we came to have one and what it means and where the ideas come from. And to dispel some myths about the tomb, I think there's a lot of misinformation that floats out there about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, the tomb guards. And we just want to make sure that as we approach the centennial, you're in the know so you yes. can help dispel people who will likely be posting misinformation about the tomb yes yes i have heard guides make errors at the tomb anyway we'll get to it it's gonna be great so the tomb of the unknown soldier actually to to start us off we're i'm gonna refer you guys to one of our episodes last month for perhaps a little bit of context the tomb of the unknown soldier really comes about after the first world war and we did a whole pod last month about the overview of the war and sort of what happened and it is well worth listening to if i do say so myself so go check that out but the tldr of that world war one episode is world war one was really terrible also, they didn't call it World War I while they were fighting it. 
What do they call it, Becca? Uh, the Great War and the War to End All Wars, right? We had never seen global war on this scale, the devastation across the globe. But even for the United States, I, I said this in the last pod, but there's a misconception, I think, often that because the U.S. gets in so late, that the losses are more minimal. And sure, comparatively to other nations, our losses are less. But when you look at how long we are in the war, a little about 18 months, we have over 100,000 members of our service members killed in action. And it's important to note that it was not the policy of the United States to bring those service members back to the United States. So many of them are buried in foreign cemeteries. So in a, in a little over a year, we lose 100,000 Americans and most of them never get a chance, their families never get a chance to say goodbye. So it is this feeling of just massive devastation. It is just, I think for this generation, unimaginable the scale of, of the loss. And it is fair to say that the United States doesn't suffer on the home level. Like the yes. war is fought in Europe. And so we're not under attack. We're not, you know, there's no cities that are destroyed in the US like there is in Europe. The other part that we didn't really mention in our first, in the pod that we did specifically in the First World War is there's a technology piece to this that is, I think, important and sort of feeds into why we decide to have the tomb, which is the First World War, there's a lot, we've made a lot of advances as far as military technology that enables people to kill other people very quickly and a lot of them. And there's a sense with all this devastation, not only lives, but also like whole towns and cities and lots of money spent, there's a sense that the technology is sort of outpacing our ability to control it. Like we are getting ahead of ourselves and we've got ways to make war that are so terrible that perhaps like we should not do this anymore. And there's a sense, particularly among the allied powers, the winners, that, you know, this was really bad and this is not what civilized people do. They don't make war like this and kill millions of people. And we should never, ever, ever do this again. Which is very optimistic, given the course of human history. Even without knowing what happens in the 20th century, just given the course of human history, it's very optimistic to sort of say, this is the war to end all wars. We will not fight a war like this again. We are going to take measures to make sure this doesn't happen again. And and it's it's so optimistic in many ways. It is really optimistic. And in fairness to the Europeans who kind of decide this, like they had had a long century of just about peace from the Napoleonic War through the First World War. That's about 100 years of mostly peace. And so they're like, okay, well, maybe if we do this Again, we like take steps, we can really mitigate the idea that we're going to fight another war. And so it's very well-intentioned and optimistic and very like, I feel like super naive. Uh, but they have this idea that, you know, this was really terrible. This was the, the last war we're ever going to fight on this planet because we've learned our lesson. We're not doing this again. And so to commemorate that, we want to commemorate this last war that we're ever gonna fight. The war was really terrible. So we wanna commemorate that. We wanna commemorate all of the lives lost, but we also wanna like have this warning to future generations. If you ever, we ever forget how bad this was, just come here and you'll remember how bad the great war was. And so the Europeans are particularly at the forefront of doing this. They are going to decide that the best way to honor their servicemen is to bury an unidentified serviceman in their nation's capital. And you'll see this in all the major allied powers. In Italy, it's in Rome. It's at the altar of the fatherland, right near the ancient heart of Rome. In Paris, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers beneath the Arc de Triomphe. And in London, it's in Westminster Abbey. It's called the Cenotaph. So where they crown kings and queens, they have a chunk of marble and buried at the entrance of Westminster Abbey. And to this day, whenever they have like a royal ceremony or whatever at Westminster, no one walks over the cenotaph, even the monarch. They walk around. That's how big a deal this is. They do not, no one walks on this. And so that's how seriously they take this. And the United States says, hey, you know what? That's a really good idea. We should do something like that. And so we decide that we're going to sort of copy the Europeans and we are going to bury an unidentified American uh, servicemen. We're going to bring them back from their uh, resting place in France, most likely, and bury them at the heights at Arlington uh, in the middle of Arlington National Cemetery. 
And this is a really, I think a really good idea. And so everybody's like, yeah, we're on board. Let's do this. And so then they have to build the tomb. And that actually takes a little bit more time than you might expect. It takes a couple of years. Not to compliment a president who you do not care for, but who we have now sort of accidentally said nice things about in the last couple of episodes. President Woodrow Wilson, in one address about this tomb, says he wants to do something for the nation's mothers. There's an acknowledgement that even though this war wasn't fought here and we were very lucky ultimately as Americans to be sort of distant from the war, that for those that sent off their sons to fight, they never had a chance to say goodbye. They never had a chance to pay their respects. They didn't have a grave site they could visit. And so um, Wilson does sort of take into account, uh, I think, the emotional toll of this war. So having a place where families can gather and remember, this is very good um, sort of PR for Woodrow Wilson. It is estimated that before sort of modern technology, basically World War II-ish, that up to a third of battlefield deaths are going to be unidentifiable. So that is a lot of people. And you just, Becca just mentioned about 100,000 American casualties. That's, I'm not great at math, but that's about 30,000 people who died and their families don't have, like they never get a telegram from the War Department. There's never closure. There's never like, there's grieving, but there's never like a focus for that. And so I don't say a lot of nice things about Wilson, but it is nice that they decide to have a spot for all of the mothers and wives and family members who are still waiting on words so that they can have a focal point for their grief, which I think is nice. Agreed. And of course, Arlington National Cemetery, uh, of course, in our minds today, is the perfect place for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. At the time, it's a good spot because there's land available. That's what makes it appealing. Um, The location, obviously, proximity to the nation's capital. But, you know, if you think about where some of these other World War I unknowns are in other capital cities, we didn't really have a lot of space to do this, you know, we could have maybe put it on the Capitol grounds or on the National Mall, but Arlington had a lot of space and it was naturally part of, already had that sort of military connection. So it's sort of the right idea, but a lot of available land with the heights overlooking the city, it's kind of perfect. It really is. And it sort of is part of the making of Arlington Cemetery too. We very much today associate Arlington with being the nation's premier military cemetery. And it is today, but it really was not necessarily in the 19 teens and 20s. This is going to start to do that for Arlington Cemetery, uh, the creation of the tomb uh, and locating it there. So, and there also was, I really should mention an existing Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington. And it really frequently does get kind of overlooked looked and it's really a shame because it's lovely but it is the tomb of the civil war unknowns and perhaps it gets overlooked because there's no guard perhaps it gets overlooked because it's not just one unknown there's actually thousands 2111 unknown civil war service members so it they're and they're not all necessarily northern they're it's possible they're a combination we don't know they were unidentifiable uh and so they're buried under a large um marble or large granite headstone and it's near the house it's near the lee custis lee mansion and it is also near something called the tanner amphitheater which is still there and that is where they had decoration day ceremonies for many many years until we decide we're going to build this big marble Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in a different part of Arlington Cemetery, uh, and we're going to make that into the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And so that's the idea. They're going to take a little while and build this big tomb. They are going to, it's, uh, the tomb itself is a sarcophagus, which is an above ground tomb, and it is white marble, and it consists of seven laurel wreaths representing the seven major battles that the United States was involved in. And they are going to select an unidentified American. They're actually going to exhume on Memorial Day 1921, they're going to exhume four unknown servicemen from you American cemeteries uh, in several different places, Aimeen, Meuse-Argonne, Somme, and Saint-Mihel. The United States Army selects a decorated, wounded, Medal of Honor recipient, Edward Younger, to select which of the four exhumed unknowns are going to be the unknown. And Younger is going to decide, he's going to walk amongst these three cast, four caskets, 
and he's going to decide by putting a spray of roses on one of them which one's going to be the one and he decides the third from the left and he later says that that was the one he felt pulled towards that that was the uh unknown that he felt should be at arlington uh and so the other three are remaining are going to be interred at the muse argonne cemetery in france and the chosen unknown is going to get on a boat and come back to washington they're going to lay in state uh, in the Capitol Rotunda until Armistice Day, which we know better as Veterans Day. So November 11th, 1921. Uh, and on 1921, President Warren Harding is going to officiate at uh, Arlington National Cemetery. During this ceremony, the World War I unknown is going to be awarded several decorations, including the Victoria Cross, uh, which is on behalf of the King of England. We are going to bestow the Medal of Honor on the World War I unknown. Uh, and so that's, they're going to be, it's a big ceremony. Harding presides. It's all very wonderful. And that's the tomb for a long time. It is going to be, at first, it actually did not have a guard at all. The guard that we have today is going to come about a little bit later on. But uh, they build an amphitheater for ceremonies. And the idea is every Memorial Day and every Veterans Day, the president or the vice president, sometimes both, is going to come, lay a wreath, have a ceremony, and they will remember every year the worst war that has ever been fought on this planet. And it will be a reminder to future generations that we should be very careful and not ever do this again. And it's important to note um, the the unknown soldier uh, from the First World War is interred 1921. But the tomb as we see it today, as you go to visit it, it comes almost 10 years later. So it really is a process to fund this tomb, everything. It needs congressional funding. That takes time. Uh, there's a design competition. There's the actual construction of it. So if you were to have visited the cemetery in the early 1920s, what you would have seen is very different than what you see today. But by 1931, you have this really large stately structure it's really very beautiful. Um, you know, it, it stands out as you walk up. You can sort of see it there. But yes, it isn't guarded the way that it is today. It's just sort of there for people to visit. But you know, by 1931, 1932, 1933, that war was 10 years ago. It's as, as time marches on, it starts to lose a little bit perhaps of that immediate connection. And there start to be some concerns because, you know, Arlington is starting to become more popular. The George Washington Parkway is built around this time. So people now have an easy vehicular access to the cemetery. Um, more people are visiting by vehicle. More people are visiting by car. Um, people are coming to the cemetery. They're hanging out. They're picnicking. Uh, and occasionally they picnic right there at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Because, you know, there's steps and a nice view. And it's kind of a nice spot. And it's really one of the things I feel like that most throws people about not just the tomb, but generally like picnicking at a cemetery was a thing that people did regularly back in the 20s and 30s, which seems really weird to us today because going to a picnic is great and going to a cemetery is great, but the two don't seem to mix and they had very different ideas of death and how to commemorate things. Uh, and it starts to get, you know, people are bringing picnics to the tomb and not being like overtly disrespectful, but at the same time. And before the large structure is completed, it really was just sort of a flat area. So it was a perfect area to sort of lay out your picnic and settle in. Yeah. And it just, I mean, they weren't being rude or disrespectful, but at the same time, that's not really the air of like you know, remembrance and respect that we want. And so they're going to originally have a civilian guard that is only guarding the tomb while the tomb is open to visit or while the cemetery is open to visitors. And then eventually the army is like, wait a second, this is an army installation. The cemetery is run by the army. We should have an army guard. And so the full time 24 hour tomb guard is going to be instituted in 1937. And we'll circle back to them a little bit later on. Uh, we'll continue on with the history of the tomb and circle back to the guard in a minute. But as you have probably already figured out, World War I was not the last war we ever fought. There were a few others, uh, including World War II and Korea, which happened very close together. So they're gonna select the two, the unknowns in 1958. Eisenhower himself is gonna preside over the dedication on the same day of both the World War II and the Korea unknown. And then 
they're going to lay in state, by the way, in the Capitol as well. Same with the World War I unknown. They're both going to be given the Medal of Honor. Uh, so that's very similar ceremony, sort of uh, the same pomp and circumstance. There's more than one uh, kind of selected and then one chosen among those. So it, it, the process that's sort of established with the First World War gets repeated uh, with each subsequent interment. Yes. So that happens. And then now there's three unknowns at the tomb. And then we get into the Vietnam War. And by the Vietnam War, technology is improving as far as particularly DNA testing. And there's also, we have dog tags by this time. So it is difficult to, there aren't as many soldiers who are dying and they can't be identified. They have dog tags with them. There's usually some kind of identifying marker. And so when the, the t- comes time they wanna have uh, or a Vietnam unknown, there actually are fewer candidates to choose from. And there is a, they eventually are going to select one. President Reagan presides over the dedication in um, Memorial Day 1984. Same idea, they, the Vietnam unknown is going to lie in state uh, in the rotunda of the Capitol. Uh, they're then going to be uh, awarded the Medal of Honor. Uh, and they're going to be interred in the, at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier as well. And so now there's the World War I unknown, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And I'll add for those um, who haven't visited uh, in person, you'll see that large white sarcophagus. But then if you're viewing it from where typically people visit the tomb, you'll see three slabs in front of that tomb that then mark World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. So there's the large sarcophagus itself, but then sort of three marble slabs in the front as well. Uh, And, you know, we add a service member for Vietnam. And uh, at the time, they sort of feel like he's kind of unknown, but not really. Um, But there's such a push at the end of the Vietnam War. This war had been so complicated, so emotional. There had been so, you know, the emotions of the nation were so high that, you know, 1982, we dedicate the Vietnam Wall. And there's sort of this surge of remembrance and acknowledgement. And there is a lot of pressure to include some service member from Vietnam at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. The thing is that (laughs) we had a lot of evidence to I should say a lot of circumstantial evidence to what might have been this service member's uh, identity. And so there was a POW MIA activist, a man named Ted Sampley, who did some research and started digging into what the story of this unknown might be. And it turns out there was a lot of stuff. There was like a Bible and part of his jacket with part of his name and a lot of things that would at least be enough evidence to say, we might be able to confirm the identity of this person. And so Ted puts together all of this information. He publishes an article in his newspaper. uh, And then he goes to the family and says, look, I can't tell you what to do, but I think there's a really strong case that this is your son who has been missing in action um, since 1972. And so this family, the Blassies of Missouri, will go to the media. They will start um, getting some attention around this case. And they will eventually publicly pressure the Department of Defense to do a DNA test. So in 1998, they actually do exhume the body of the Vietnam unknown. They're able to do a DNA test because they have family members they can compare that DNA to. And they identify that it was First Lieutenant Michael Blassie who had been, in fact, missing in action since he was shot down in 1972. So in 1998, not that long after, 14 years later, we're able to identify the unknown for Vietnam. What's interesting to me is that they kind of had an idea who it probably was, and the family's really going to push for this. And there's a lot, after they identify Blazy, there is a lot of discussion about should he remain interred there. He's no longer an unknown. We now know who he is. And his family also wanted him back. They're from Missouri. They wanted him to be buried close to them. And so uh, after some discussion, uh, his remains are going to arrive home and he's buried actually near outside of Missouri today. And so the Vietnam tomb is empty and has been empty since the late 90s. It is also worth, and this is a question, I don't know if you get this on tour, Becca, but I get this a lot. The question is, if they can identify Blazy, why can't we go back and identify the First World War, Second World War, Korea unknowns? And the answer is actually kind of complicated, but here's the short, short version. DNA testing alone doesn't tell you very much. It's not, my DNA is not going to tell you a lot unless you have a family member to compare it to. 
So there's no guarantee that the First World War unknown has living family members or that we have their DNA on file. They have to be somewhere in a DNA database. (laughs) Right. They have to be somewhere in a database. And so there's no way effectively to figure out how to test for that. And we're not going to um, exhume an honorably honorably, uh, buried serviceman on a hunch or on a supposition. And so that's why there has not been um, any efforts to try to identify the other unknowns. Additionally, though, it is worth mentioning that the Vietnam unknown will probably be the last unknown. There is very, there's, it's unlikely that there will be another unknown that we can't identify. There'll be someone that we don't have the technology to identify because all service members have DNA on file and DNA testing is actually pretty advanced. I don't know the science exactly, but it seems like it works pretty well. So it is likely that the tomb is the way that it will be forever. Uh, and so that's um, worth mentioning. Yeah, as the well. pledge today of the armed forces is to identify every fallen American. And so we do not, it is no longer our custom to place unidentified soldiers into graves, into um, tombs or, or memorials or anything like that. Because you can go to a lot of military cemeteries and see unknowns from past wars, um, but that is today not the primary focus of the armed forces. They believe in trying to utilize that technology to identify every fallen American. And one of my favorite things actually about leading tours at Arlington is often today, there may be a funeral service taking place for a soldier that had been missing from World War II or Korea or Vietnam who's just been identified and laid to rest. And I always find that particularly moving because there's no time limit on that. There's no kind of statue of limitations. Uh, if you are identified and you are qualified, you can be laid to rest at Arlington. So, that, But that does sort of answer the question too I think people have of like, well, what about adding more more soldiers recognizing more wars. Today, that identification is is really the goal, and that's considered bringing that closure to families is more important than continuing to have a place to honor them for the nation, which I think is important. I think it is too, and it is also worth mentioning, people ask this, uh, we already talked about the Civil War unknowns. There also is an unknown uh, in Philadelphia as well for the American Revolution. It is a very different looking tomb. It is on a park in the middle of uh, that area, the sort of historic area of Philadelphia. Washington DC was not a thing in during the American Revolution. We didn't exist down here. So it is fitting that there should be something in Philadelphia uh, for uh, the unknowns, but that it, there is a uh, memorial for them. It's just not- However, here. If you go to Old Town Alexandria and you go to the old Presbyterian meeting house where George Washington once attended church services, there is in their little uh, little churchyard, uh, several American soldiers are laid to rest, including there is a unknown soldier of the American Revolution in Old Town Alexandria. And there's a special little memorial there and it's been maintained uh, by a number of heritage organizations. Um, so if you are uh, in Old Town Alexandria and you want to at least see a unknown soldier of the American Revolution, we do have one in Old Town Alexandria at the Old Presbyterian Meeting House. So, Becca, let's talk a little bit about the guard. Yeah, the guard. So most people, I think today, when you think about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, most people go to visit not so much because they know all this backstory of the tomb, but because they've heard about the guards. The guards are really, I think, the big draw for the tomb today. Um, As we mentioned before... They start a 24-7 sort of civilian or a non-civilian military guard in 1937. Uh, And these tomb guards are here 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They are outside guarding that tomb when it's 110 degrees, when it's below freezing, raining, snowing, blizzards, earthquakes, tornadoes, derechos, any crazy thing that happens in Washington, D.C., pandemics. These tomb guards are there. They have a very set routine to what they do. They will walk 21 steps and wait 21 seconds. And then they will walk 21 steps and wait 21 seconds, 21, 21, 21. It's a silent version of the 21 gun salute that is ongoing at the tomb of the unknown soldier. And um, there's a really, I think, just beautiful symbolism to having a guard there 24 hours a day because the cemetery is not open 24 hours. (laughs) It's It's not a show for us. 
it is because you know these the this tomb and what it represents is worthy of being protected and being preserved. And I love the idea of sort of like there's no soldier left behind. There's that mentality in the armed forces. And I just feel that way when I think about a guard always being there. Now, they don't, you, if you go to the tomb, you'll obviously go during the hours that the cemeteries open. When you see the tomb, you will see them in their dress uniform. They will be in full dress. And I always like to point out to particularly school kids, the full dress uniforms are wool. Okay. A hundred percent. A hundred percent wool. And it gets to 110 degrees in the sun. There is no shade at the tomb. So there were, again, wool, which is not a breathable fabric. Like they're not wearing like moisture wicking whatevers. No, they're in wool with a hat and a full dress uniform. Plus, they're also carrying a rifle, which is not loaded. But even unloaded, the M1 rifle that they're carrying is pretty heavy. It's, we're talking about 15 pounds. So just, you know, when you think about how hot you are in the summertime, I always spare a thought for the guys at the tomb because it's hotter where they are. And they also are, at, so you'll see them in their full dress is my point. At nighttime, when the cemetery closes, which at the sum, in the summertime is seven o'clock at night, they are then going to switch. Uh, I will just mention, if you're listening to this podcast in 2021, they are not extending their summer hours this summer. So um, in the summer, uh, the cemetery will still continue to close at five o'clock as it has year round. But in a normal year, if you're listening to this and it's not 2021 anymore, um, normally they, they would go until seven o'clock in the summer. Yes, correct. But they all at nighttime, they wear their battle dress. So fatigues. So what you're kind of used to seeing somebody in, um, they also change the guard every two hours at night because there's no one there to see it. And they're not usually sweating and, and dying of heat stroke mm -hmm. at midnight. <laughs> so during the winter months, which for the tomb is October 1st through the end of March, let's not argue about whether that's winter or not, folks. It just is according to Arlington <laughs> Cemetery. According to Arlington. <laughs> they, change the two, they change the guard every hour on the hour while the cemetery is open. In the summer months, they change the guard from April 1st to September 30th. They change the guard every half an hour while the cemetery is open. Mostly because, as I mentioned, it really gets hot up there. I cannot emphasize enough how disgusting and hot and humid it gets. No shade, and you're just standing on this marble and granite that's just like oh, baking in the sun, white. and and it's just reflecting like off of like there's marble and marble and marble, and it's just reflecting onto the the tomb guard. Oh, just it's it's hot. I just yeah. And of course, coming to watch the changing of the guard is, I think, one of the highlights of going to Arlington and it gets crowded. Mm -hmm. And so that every half hour change is really useful. This is certainly my tip if you visit during a summer and it seems busy, is if it seems too crowded, wait for the next changing. It's only 30 minutes. There's lots of interesting things to see near the tomb. And, uh, you know, usually uh, because of the every half hour change, you'll be able to get a chance where it won't be so crowded. Yes. And oh, I was just going to say, you're talking the about the full dress uniform. Place, I think it's oh, important sorry, to note that else? when they are guarding the tomb, they do not wear rank. So when you're guarding your tomb, you do not wear your rank insignia. That is because we do not know the ranks of the unknowns because they're unknowns. So we have no idea to know what their rank is. And you cannot outrank them while you're guarding them. So... Um, they do not wear any rank. However, uh, when they're in their full dress uniforms, they are welcome to wear any um, medals that they have been awarded um, because all of the unknown soldiers have the Medal of Honor and you can't out-medal the Medal of Honor. So um, when you visit Arlington, if you watch the Changing of the Guard, you might notice that some of these tomb guards have Purple Heart, uh, Silver Star. They'll have various... Um, medals and decorations, they're entitled to wear any of those um, because they are not going to outmedal the Medal of Honor, but they will not wear their rank insignia. So it's a little different than um, the dress uniform you may see in other um, sort of military situations. They also, the changing of the guard takes about nine minutes. It actually varies between seven and 10 minutes is usually depends on how fast they're running. Uh, but what will happen is exactly on the hour, they will, the clock will toll the number of whatever hour it is. The a sergeant will come out and now the sergeant will wear his sergeant's bars on his, uh, the, his arm. He will speak to the assembled crowd and tell them the ceremony that they're about to witness and ask them to stand. 
And it's really not an ask. It's more of a stand. <laughs> it's more of an instruction. And then the new guard, so the oncoming guard will come up. The sergeant will inspect the oncoming guard, look over every aspect of the guard's appearance, including the rifle, their shoes, make sure their hat is, everything has to be perfect. Uh, the real, and as I like to tell people on tour, the real inspection takes place though, before they come up to the public. They spend hours, and it is not an exaggeration, between four and five hours preparing their uniforms, making sure every single part of their appearance is completely perfect. They burn off any stray fibers. They have special tools that they've created to make sure that all of the buttons line up and are completely polished. Their gloves, their white gloves have to be clean. Their rifle has to be clean. Shoes shined, hair perfect, everything perfect completely. And they spent hours doing this. And people always ask, particularly if they're on the younger side of things, why? Why is this such a big deal? Well, this is how they pay their respects to those. And I emphasize this a lot. The unknowns represent thousands of other unknowns who have given not only their lives for their country, but their identity. So there was no, there was nothing that their family got in the mail and they represent thousands of people who gave everything, including their, the identity, the fact that they existed on this earth to this country. And so that is why these, the old guard pays the sort of level of respect and takes the care that they do uh, to uh, respect their memory and guard the tomb. So the inspection takes a few minutes and then they pass occasionally, like once a year, they won't pass. I've never actually seen this in person, but I've heard. I've seen it twice. Have you? I have. Um, it's a roll of the dice. Uh, the odds, because like you said, the inspection that we see is the second inspection they've gone through. Um, before they walk out the door, th everything is supposed to be perfect. And they're not really supposed to let them leave if it isn't. So it's very rare, but it does happen. And I think uh, if you go onto YouTube, you can certainly uh, find examples of times where guards have failed on the inspection, but it's important. It, it's an important reminder that again, this isn't a show. It's not a performance for us. They're not just going through the motions. If you are not up to snuff, you're not going to walk the mat, as we say. You're not going to be guarding the tomb or you need to fix what the problem is before you can get onto that mat. And I will, there will always be someone, particularly when you're doing a school tour, will ask what happens to them if they fail. And- Shot on sight. Right, shot on sight, exactly. <laughs> No. So what I say to them is this, look, the fact that they have failed publicly, not only in front of the public, but in front of their superiors and in front of the unknowns, that is, is really the worst. There's no worse punishment than that. So the fact that they have to go down, back down under the ground, underneath the tomb, like sort of hat in hand and feel ashamed, that's really the worst punishment you can imagine for people whose whole job it is uh, to look perfect and guard this tomb. So it happens once a year. I've never seen it happen. Uh, and I've been doing this for a while. Uh, they pass the inspection and then they're going to, there's this elaborate ceremony and I never know exactly how to describe it, but it's like a dance. The, the guard who's leaving, the guard who's oncoming will exchange orders and they move in synchrony. They're in synchronous movement. They, it, the training that it must take to do this is amazing to me because all of their movements are all completely coordinated. They do the exact same thing at the same moment. They all salute the tomb. They click their heels together. At it's all very coordinated. And it's very much like a dance. Eventually, the orders have been exchanged. The guard that's leaving, the older guard, the one who's been there, he will exit. The sergeant will follow him and the new guard will start walking the mat, which as Becca described is 21 seconds of 21 paces followed by 21 seconds of waiting and then 21 paces. I will, however, mention that what the Sentinel is doing is not just ceremonial. If there is a disturbance, if people are being loud, if people are trying to enter the plaza when they shouldn't, they will stop what they are doing. They will stop that 21 pace, 21 weight, step off, and they will do what they need to do to stop the disturbance. Now, normally, 99% of the time, a verbal warning is all it takes <laughs> because they look very scary in their uniforms and they do have those M14 rifles with them. They're, you know, intimidating. They're in their uniform. They're, you know, commanding and they will step off and they will tell you in no uncertain terms that you need to step back 
or maintain silence. So they will if they need to do that. I often get asked, especially by kids, what happens if someone tries to rush the tomb? You know, their job is to protect it. So they'll do what they need to do. However, 99% of the time, all it takes is a mere opening of their mouths to stop what is usually well-meaning people who are just getting chatty or people who are trying to get a good picture and get too close. Um, we have been very, very fortunate at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier to not have um, have had any major incidents. However, because of things that have happened at other unknown tombs and unknown places in other countries, they no longer sort of comment on their security protocol. Um, and they have increased security around the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. You might notice military police in addition to uh, the tomb guards. But they, they are not just there to look pretty. If you are being loud, if you're being disrespectful, they're going to call it out and they're not going to be shy about it. I always tell my groups, it's better you hear it from me than from them because they're not nice about it. And I will say two things at this particular juncture. The first thing I will say, and I'm sure that this is true for you as well. If you, every now and then I'll catch one of the tomb guards off duty, sort of walking around, they are unfailingly nice. Yeah. I have never experienced a single one of them <laughs> that won't stop and talk to a group and take pictures and answer questions. And they're very wonderful, lovely people, but they're fierce on the job and they should be. They take what they do very seriously as they should. Um, and they take great pride in what they do. You don't do this job. There's no extra bonus pay. There's no, you know, you don't do it. The hours are not great. We'll talk maybe a little bit about their schedule and what it's like. But, you know, you don't do it for the, the, the perks. You do it because of what it means. And you do it because it means something to you. And when you talk to a lot of the tomb guards, often um, those that are compelled to apply have somebody in their family perhaps who was killed in action or missing in action, or they have a long history of military service in their family. And so for them, it, it has a personal meaning. It has great meaning. And so they do it because they believe in it. And they are, in my opinion, every tomb guard I've ever met is just young and nice. Because when you see them out of their uniforms, they look so much younger than they do in their dress uniforms. But when they're on the mat, when they're on the job, they are there to maintain that sense of reverence. And uh, I have seen, I've seen grownups be be called out for not being respectful. It's almost always grownups, actually. Kids are a lot better. Kids are really good at it, um, actually. <laughs> Once you tell them and sort of put the fear of God in kids, they're really respectful. I, it's the grown unless they pass out, which has happened to me, actually. I've had a student pass out at least once. Yeah, if you go in the fault. summer, be, be mindful of the heat. Be yes. mindful of the sun. Drink yes. water because um, I've seen I've seen mm -hmm. emergency services have to come up to the tomb more than once because mm -hmm. a bystander has passed out in the summer. And the other thing that I will say is it's still nature. Like you're still outside, and there's I'm sure that this is on the YouTube's. Uh, there was an incident a few years ago where one of the tomb guards got stung by a bee. Because again. Bees don't know that this is the Tomb of the Unknown. And the guy gets stung by a bee in his neck and his neck starts to swell up and he just keeps guarding the tomb because that's his job and that's how seriously they take it. They're, it's real, like they are really the real deal. They take it extremely seriously. They're very good at it. And even a bee sting doesn't slow them down. Like it's really a thing. Um, I have nothing but respect for people who can do this because I cannot. A little more dramatically than a bee sting is a couple years ago when during the inspection, the <gasps> rifle slid through the hands and there's a little bayonet on the end of that sucker and it went right into the foot of the guard. They're the, only part, they're the only part of the military that's still at permanently fixed bayonets. So they have their bayonet at the end of their rifle and it's sharp, guys. It's sharp. And it goes right through the guy's foot. Um, we'll we'll try to link so you guys can uh, get a little a little insight into that. But the sheer professionalism of being like, I've been stabbed in a foot. That's okay. We'll finish what we need to do, and then we'll get someone out here to replace me. It's fine. We're gonna and make he, it work. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't like stop. He doesn't cry. He just all things I would have done. All things I would have run around holding my foot. He's like bleed anyway. They're bleeding, and they continue the change of the guard. It's amazing to me. So let's talk just a little bit about what it takes to be a guard and a little bit about how they get to that position. There's a lot of misconceptions out there. I promise what you're hearing from us comes straight from the tomb guards and the society of the tomb guards and guards that we've talked to. So um, I know you're going to listen to this and some of you are going to go, but I heard this or I saw this. I promise you we're, we're giving you that we're giving you the straight deal. Really, all it takes 
to be a tomb guard is to be in the 3rd Regiment of the U.S. Army and to volunteer for this position. That's all it takes. You go and knock on the door. You put in an application packet, which includes letters of recommendations, physical and mental evaluations. And there is an ideal they're looking for. Physically, you have to be up to this task. So there's no set waist size, but you have to be trim. You have to be fit. There used to sort of be an unspoken rule. If you couldn't fit into the uniform off the rack, this was not the gig for you. But you need to be able to stand up to the rigors of this. And there is a look they're going for. Tall, lean, that's the look. Ideally for men, that's 5'10", and for women, it's 5'8". There is no upper limit. So we've had some really tar tall tomb guards. Uh, one at least I know that was 6'6". Six, six. So um, you, you, if you're a shorty, it's going to be harder for you to get it, get in. Now, what I say on tour is if you're not, if you're a man and you're like 5'8", two inches shy of their preference, and you meet all the other requirements and can physically do this job, they're not going to tell you no. Like they want people who can do this and who are dedicated to it. However, the uniforms only let out so much. And this is why they're all so young because, you know, I don't know about you, Becca, but 30 inch waist was many, many, many years ago, <laughs> if ever. So they're all very young and very fit. And the, you have to be up to the physical workers of the job. And I also will mention here that we're using the generic guys. There actually are women tomb guards, uh, currently two. So there are two women there right now. There's only been five in the history of the tomb have been awarded the tomb guard badge. And in the most recent year uh, has been Sergeant Chelsea Porterfield. Um, there is a woman training right now, but she has not earned the tomb guard badge. But it's the first time we've had two women who are actually serving at the tomb concurrently, not just having uh, women serve as like um, relief commander or whatever. So it is exciting. But yeah, we generally use guys as like the colloquial grouping of people. And you also have to be enlisted as well. You No officers guard the tomb. It is enlisted only. It is, which I, I love the democracy of that. And uh, the third guard, the old guard, the third infantry regiment is the oldest active duty uh, continuously active uh, regiment in the United States Army. So there, there's a lot of history to this guard, uh, to the tomb guard, to the, the regiment. They uh, used to be horse-mounted cavalry guards, which is why uh, when you watch the changing of the guard, you'll notice that when they click their heels, uh, there's metal inserts to sort of make that sound and make it more dramatic for the audience, I believe. But also it's a nod to their history as horse-mounted When guards. you would have had the actual spurs yes. on, on your shoes. Yes. So you apply, and if you're deemed a worthy candidate, you enter into training. The first two weeks are kind of the, the gauntlet. You have, they have to see if you can follow basic instructions. They have to see if you can understand this. You have to do all of your basic assessments. If you get through those two weeks, then your training is self-paced. You have 12 months to complete this training. If you can't do it in 12 months, this isn't the gig for you. Ideally, most of these um, guards will do it in about seven to eight months, although the fastest that I know of is four months, which seems pretty impressive. You are doing a lot during this time. You are studying like crazy, um, typically 12-hour days studying. You are learning um, everything there is to learn. You're going to take five exhaustive exams in different categories, understanding the uniform, understanding um, the knowledge of the tomb, uh, understanding the history of Arlington National Cemetery. You're memorizing poems, which is one of my favorite things. They have to memorize poems. Um, they're memorizing verbatim content. They're learning about various um, service members laid to rest at Arlington, the location of their grave sites, their military service records. And they're learning, as you were talking about earlier, sort of this choreography of this post that you are learning every little bit of the mechanics of how this goes. Um, it's a 17-page packet of information that you must memorize and you must be able to write out verbatim, including punctuation. To pass that exam, you have to do that with no more than 10 mistakes, um, which is a lot when you're thinking about this verbatim. You are going to have to really learn the cadence and everything. So if you can get through all of this, which is a big order, you then kind of get to be qualified. That means that you're going to get to actually go out and guard the tomb. Um, so if you can actually get through all of this sort of stuff, all the all the memorization, the studying, the learning, you are able to actually go and become what is called fully qualified, and you can now actually try to earn your tomb guard identification badge. This means you have to actually go out, um, be at the tomb. There are 200 points of inspection when you're guarding the tomb kind of in probation. There are 200 different things they're looking for. You cannot have any major infractions. This would be like really messing up, missing a step, 
coming out with something missing on your uniform, you're only allowed to have two minor infractions during the time that you're doing this sort of um, probationary training. And you can almost always tell if you're at the tomb, if somebody is still sort of probationary, still earning that badge, because they don't have the badge yet. And normally when they're out there, tomb guards will come out in their khakis and their black polos, and they're usually giveaway haircuts, because you can tell they've got that high and tight. And they will come out and watch them. And sometimes they'll even have a clipboard, and they're literally taking notes of how they're doing. Um, so you really have to get through this entire process. You have to know your stuff in and out. And if you get through all, all of this, you earn that tomb guard identification badge. And this badge is a really big deal. It's exceptionally rare. It is numbered. They have issued just a little over 690 of these badges in the history of the tomb. This is a badge that you have for life uh, and it can be revoked at any time. Uh, and it has been, there have been badges revoked. And it doesn't matter, even once you have this badge, every single time you ch are changing the guard, you're evaluated. And every time you do that inspection, it doesn't matter how long you've been at the tomb, it doesn't matter how long you've had your badge. Every time you do that uniform inspection, it's like the first time, it's brand new. So you have to be, you have to maintain that level even once you've achieved the badge. Right, there's no slacking off on this. The tomb guards, so they do revoke badges usually for like felonies. So, you know, don't commit felonies, which is pretty good advice, I feel like, for most people. The badges is actually the second least awarded badge in the entire military. The only uh, merit badge that is awarded less often. Do you know what it is, Becca? Astronaut. Yes. We had to learn this for this reason, which obviously like being an astronaut involves some pretty specific science. It's a pretty, pretty elite group to be yeah. in the army and then also be an astronaut. The schedule also, which we should mention, is very punishing. They are, you sign up for a two-year stint as a tomb guard and you can renew if you want. Some do, some don't. And you're there for, your duty station is technically Fort Meyer, which is on the northwest side of Arlington Cemetery. Uh, but you're on for a 24-hour shift. And so you're at the tomb in the sort of rabbit's warren of rooms that they have underneath the tomb for a whole day. You are, you guard the tomb, you uh, make sure your uniform is perfect and ready to go. You assist your buddies. Uh, there's not a lot of sleeping going on. Maybe you get something to eat while you're there and you have like a couple minutes of downtime, but you're really working for 24 straight hours. You're helping with crowd control. You're greeting veterans and mm -hmm. honor flights when they come. You're assisting with wreath layings, um, which today we mentioned wreath layings uh, done by the president, but at least in the pre-COVID time, pretty much any non-political, non-partisan group could apply to do a wreath laying. So you might have in any given day, 20, 30 wreath layings mm -hmm. taking place. And these, all of those have to be they have to have greetings. They have to have instructions given. They have to be implemented. So even if you're not on the mat, you're still very much at work during that 24 hours. And one of the myths, I'm going to dispel our favorite myth that we get all the time. Are you ready? You ready for this one? <laughs> yes. This is the myth. Okay. The myth is that when you're a tomb guard, you can't drink or smoke or use adult language while you're a guard and then for the rest of your life ever. <laughs> that is not true. Obviously, drinking and smoking while you're on duty is very bad. They don't want you to do that. You shouldn't do that. But when you're off duty, when you're like a normal person, you can do whatever you want. You can drink. These are normal people. They go out with their friends. They cuss sometimes. You know, they're allowed to smoke if that's their jam. I mean, I would imagine meeting the physical requirements while you're a smoker is probably an additional challenge, but whatever, they're young. And that also you can do whatever you want for the rest of your life. Like obviously don't commit felonies, but again, good advice for everybody. Yeah, you need to avoid a dishonorable discharge. Yes. You need to avoid a felony. But for the most part, you are welcome to live your life. You don't have to take a vow of silence. Um, of that's one of my favorites too. Yeah, a <laughs> vow of celibacy. Um, these are these are normal people. They obviously hold themselves to a high standard, particularly on duty and in uniform, as they should and as the military requires. But they are pretty normal, normal young people. <laughs> As it were, and honestly, some of these people ask, like, how much trouble can they get into? It's not that much. When you work 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, 96 hours off, um, it's not really a ton of free time. Uh, it's a pretty punishing schedule. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're on an eight-day cycle, so they're on, off, on, off, and then they get 96 hours off. But two of those, that's three days, two of those days they have to show up for PT in the morning. So they really only get one true, like, actual day off in an eight-day cycle, which is a lot 
physically, emotionally, it's a lot. So the other thing is people ask all the time, do they get paid? Yes. Yes, they do get paid. They get paid whatever there is commensurate with their rank, which you can look up the rank schedule on the uh, interwebs. It's available. Uh, another question that we get all the time is, are they guarding the tomb from anything? Like, are we are people going to attack the tomb? No. We hope not. And this is the time that I pivot to my story about September 11th. So from the tomb, if you ever go, you actually can see part of the Pentagon. More in the winter time when the leaves aren't on the trees, but you're basically the tomb guard overlooks the Pentagon and it specifically overlooks the side of the Pentagon that got hit on September 11th. And on September 11th, which was a gorgeous day, was clear blue skies. It was in the 80s. It was a lovely, lovely day. There were people at Arlington. The Pentagon was hit at 9.37 in the morning. So there were already people at our tourists at Arlington. The tomb guard, of course, was there. They watched this happen. Like they watched the plane slam into the side of the Pentagon and they were like, okay, well, we're at, somebody's at, we're under attack. We need to double up the tomb guard. And so not only did they have the guard walking the mat, they actually had a separate guard walk the perimeter that whole long day as they're watching, literally watching the events unfold. So this is very serious. They take it very seriously and they don't, uh, they guard it from attack uh, and they sort of keep that guard going no matter what's going on. And so they're, that, that's, I use that to sort of underscore how uh, very serious this is. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I just really encourage you, if you haven't been to Arlington National Cemetery, come and visit at some point. Come and see the changing of the guard in person. You can watch it online. You can watch videos. We'll obviously post one so you can kind of see what we're talking about. But in person, you will see so much more than you see just watching a video or a stream. And you'll see the technique and you'll see the level of detail that goes into this and the pride um, that these tomb guards take in the job that they do. And it's just, I think it never gets boring. There are aspects of our job that can get repetitive or tedious. Um, watching the changing of the guard is not one of them for me. I always enjoy it because I've, I've done it enough to know there are factors that can impact it. And like you said, nature happens and things happen, but it's almost, you know, it's almost like a test. It's fun to watch and see like, is it going to be as perfect as it should be? And 99% of the time it is. It really is. I almost never watch the change. And the reason I don't is, I mean, I've seen it a thousand times, but also I don't want to block somebody's view. That's my big thing. Like there's people who come here that will never see this again. And I see it all the time. And so I always stay, you know, kind of off to the side because I don't want to, to my head to block. And I'm pretty tall. I don't want somebody to be their experience to be diminished because uh, I was there. So I have, I don't watch it every time I go up there, but it is always amazing. They're so, it is such a uh, really great display of remembrance and honor uh, for our unknowns. Um, that's really just every, it's one of the coolest things I think that you can possibly see in Washington, DC. And I really truly do believe that. The other, any other myths? I think we've hit the major myths. Uh, you know, I think one is that there are only male guards. And as we mentioned before, there have been five women who have earned the Tomb Guard identification badge. Um, women were only allowed to volunteer to become Sentinels starting in 1994. So they've had a lot less time to sort of add to the ranks. Um, but the first woman came only two years after that, Sergeant Heather Johnson, um, was the first um, woman to volunteer. Um or first woman, I should say, to earn the Tomb Guard identification badge. And she volunteered pretty quickly after they opened that up to women. Uh, most recently is Sergeant uh, Porterfield, who earned her badge in 2021. So she earned her badge this year. There's another woman whose name is unknown to me at this moment, uh, although I'm sure there are tour guides listening who have gotten her name. Um, she's been up at the tomb. She's been on the mat. Um, so uh, to the best of my knowledge, she hasn't been awarded the Tomb Guard identification badge yet, because usually there's some announcement when those badges are issued. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that. And there's actually a female superintendent of the cemetery right now. So we kind of have uh, a lot of women at Arlington. And um, this is the first time we've had two women at once at the tomb. So that's really exciting. Yes. And another question I get a lot is, be, does being a tomb guard qualify you for burial at Arlington? The answer is no. Uh, on its own, it does not. Uh, obviously, you're a member of the service. And if your service eventually leads you to qualify for burial at Arlington, that's one thing. But on its own, uh, being a tomb guard does not qualify. And, and many, many, many of the tomb guards will reach that eligibility 
on their own. If you go and visit and see these tomb guards, many of them wear their combat badges. Many of them have done combat tours before they ever volunteer to be at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Many of them will go on and do combat tours after. Many of them are career military. These are men and women who intend to to be in it for the long haul. This is their career. And so many, many tomb guards will reach that, that eligibility uh, just because of their service. And then finally, um, Rebecca, it's the centennial this year. We're, we're obviously doing this um, kind of in conjunction with Memorial Day. But most of the centennial activities are going to be happening closer to the actual 100th anniversary of the tomb, which is uh, November 11th, Veterans Day, Armistice Day. Um, what are they going to be doing? What's going to be going on? So they're going to have a lot of different ceremonies, actually, in November. It's There's a whole litany. You can look up on the Arlington Cemetery website for sort of more um, up to date. But starting, they this has been going on since last November, November 2020. Uh, they have a museum exhibit at the Welcome Center uh, that's going on this whole year. Uh, but starting October, they're going to have a publication about the creation of the tomb. They're going to have a um, On the Ninth. Uh, the whole weekend of uh, Veterans Day will be sort of the main ceremony. They're going to have a plaque dedication. They're going to have a public fl uh, flower laying ceremony uh, at the tomb. They're going to have a full joint honors procession meant to evoke the elements of the First World War Unknown Soldiers 1921 funeral procession. That's going to take place on Memorial Day. They're going to have an armed forces full honors wreath laying uh, on again on Memorial Day. So there's going to be a lot going on. I imagine that all the all four five six branches of the military how many do we have now it's unknown to me uh they're all going to be involved i imagine the president and or the vice president will be involved at some stage usually the president or vice president or both are at the tomb on uh, veterans day and memorial day anyway uh but my guess is that the president will lay a wreath so it's a full slate of activities uh, veterans day will be a very big deal uh around arlington cemetery which means if you're coming to Washington come, but be aware there'll be additional security probably getting in and out of the cemetery. In addition, I really encourage you, if you don't already follow Arlington National Cemetery online, on um, Facebook, Instagram, social media, as well as you can follow the 3rd Infantry Regiment, you can follow the Old Guard online, I highly recommend you do so. They've been sharing a lot of really great information leading up to the centennial, a lot of information about the tomb, uh, talking about some of the restoration that they're doing, repaving and cleaning and doing some repairs, uh, not just to the tomb, but to the amphitheater and the surrounding area. Um, so if you can't travel here to come and see the tomb during the centennial there's going to be a lot of great virtual events as well um, and I think a lot of great web content coming out um, so we'll put links in the show notes but be sure to follow along online to stay up to date to the best of my research here I think Chelsea Porterfield is the most recent tomb guard identification badge to be issued badge 688 so I was just uh, conferring on a list of recently awarded badges that's pretty exciting well that is exciting I love that there's more Me women too. so great Oh, I love Arlington National Cemetery. Um, I know. It's just one of my favorite topics to talk about. So we want to thank you guys so much for joining us, as always, listening in. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can always uh, make sure you subscribe, review, like, uh, follow us on all the important social media channels. We're at Tour Guide Tell on Twitter and at Tour Guide Tell All on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I really encourage you to pitch the pod. Um, we've had some great recommendations. We just got a great request to do more women in STEM on the podcast. So Rebecca and I are going to dig in and uh, come up with a few more uh, women in STEM uh, for the the podcast. I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Scott Shorman, uh, who uh, reached out to me, tell me how much he was uh, enjoying the podcast. So, hey, Shorman, I'm so glad you're liking it. Um, you can get a shout out if you let us know that you like it. Um, you can always email us too, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. Uh, if you have questions, comments, um, we love getting emails from listeners. Um, we've gotten some great suggestions and recommendations uh, for further reading and further research. We love to hear from you. So don't be shy. Send an email, send a tweet, send a, send a DM, do whatever it is you need to do. But we're here to answer your questions and we're certainly here to hear your ideas about the podcast. Yes, thank you so very much for your continued support and listenings. Uh, we will be back with you next week with uh, another episode. And this is going to be a fun one. We're going to do an election episode. And we love our election episodes. We love election episodes. We're not this even going to be a little spoil it, crazy. which one it is. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to leave them. A little crazy. A little wild. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.
I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time. Bye.